This episode of The Debrief will have a slightly different format. Today, we will be conducting a critical incident review of an actual event. We will discuss the timeline of the events, as well as the aftermath, recovery, and lessons learned. Our goal in this discussion is not to criticize or second-guess any actions taken by those who responded to the event. Their actions are beyond reproach, their bravery is without question, and their sacrifices are real and need to be honored. It is our hope that by discussing this event, we will learn from it and help to improve operator safety in the future. With regards to form, we will be using the officers' actual names because they are heroes and they need to be remembered as such. For obvious reasons, we will not be using the suspect's name. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. On August 18th, 2021, the San Bernardino, California Police Department SWAT team was assigned to locate and arrest a suspect who had ambushed and attempted to murder a San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy the day before. When the team located the suspect and attempted a vehicle takedown, he immediately ambushed them with a 10mm handgun, striking Officer Jordan Robison eight times as he was exiting the van and Officer Chris Shipley once. Officer Robison was hit in both forearms, his shoulder, his femur, his stomach below the armor, and took a grazing wound to his ribs. He was also hit twice in the abdomen, which were stopped by his armor. Officer Shipley, despite being shot in the leg, was able to return fire along with a teammate, fatally wounding the suspect. Officer Shipley, without regard for his own injuries, then rendered life-saving medical aid to Officer Robison. SWAT medic Spencer Brombaugh, who was also on scene, provided life-saving aid to Officer Robison and kept him alive throughout the subsequent transport to the emergency room. My guests today are Jordan Robison, Chris Shipley, and Spencer Brombaugh. Jordan, why don't we start with the lead-up to this event? Like, what, what got you guys involved um, in this case? Uh, well, the initial intel that I was told when I was upstairs in personnel and training was that a deputy had been ambushed, and we had heard all kinds of things from he had been shot in the head and was, you know, clinging to life to, no, he's fine, he's coherent, and he's talking. Um, but the common factor that we learned was that a deputy had been ambushed in the actual city. And then as details started to unfold about the nature of the ambush, it kind of started to uh, raise some red flags as far as who we were dealing with, um, just due to the violence of it. So why don't you walk me through the ambush? What happened? Yeah, so a deputy um, on August 17th, the day prior to our shooting, a deputy attempted to pull a traffic stop for vehicle vehicle code violations on a white BMW. Um, I think it was for like window tent or something minor. Um, The vehicle then led him on a short pursuit, went around a blind corner. And what I mean by a blind corner is there was like an eight-foot block wall, cylinder block wall. Um, The vehicle went around that corner, parked, the driver exited the vehicle with a rifle. And so by the time the deputy rounded that corner, it was a met with was met with immediate and accurate gunfire. 
I think 39 rounds total were actually fired. Um, the suspect then advanced while firing on the deputy, went around to the rear portion of the car with the intentions of executing the deputy, saw the deputy was down, um, then fled the scene back in his vehicle. So that's what we were dealing that with. That's AK-47, if I remember correctly? Yeah, yeah, it was an AK. So 30-some-odd rounds of rifle fire. Uh, I, I have no idea how the deputy survived that. No, um, it severed one of the fuel lines inside of the car, inside of the deputy's vehicle, causing the vehicle to ignite. So by the time officers got there, the deputy's vehicle was completely just a fireball. So, What kind of injuries did the deputy sustain? Uh, he sustained bullet fragments to his face and his arm. I, I'm not sure if it was a bullet fragment or an actual round that he sustained to his arm. But he did sustain a lot of bullet fragments to his face, which required a lot of delicate surgeries, especially around his eyes, just to make sure he could make a full recovery. So this was a county deputy, Correct. right? San Bernardino PD is in the San Bernardino, is in San Bernardino County, so you have a PD Correct. and then a county that surrounds it. Yes, but there's pockets within our city itself that are policed by the county due to how the districting, districting unfolds. Um, so he was on patrol in the actual city itself, but it was a county pocket. Got it. And And... Obviously, with that kind of relationship, the, the two agencies are close and work together regularly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we always, when you're on patrol, you'll work hand in hand with deputies at times, especially when it comes to jurisdictional issues. And then uh, as far as our SWAT team, we were really close with the SBSO SWAT team as well. Okay, so that happens the day before. And then when do, when do you guys get put onto the case? Uh, I wasn't out there at the scene. I know Chris was working special investigations at the time, so he probably might know more. Than so, Chris, when did you first personally get involved in this thing? It was the day that the deputy got ambushed. Uh, I was notified. Again, I was working within that specialized team. We happened to be in Los Angeles County at that time. Uh, they asked me to come back to the station, so I shot all the way back to San Bernardino. During this time, there was some jurisdictional issues of who was really going to take it. Was it going to be the county or was it going to be the city just based upon where the incident did occur? Um, during that time, it was things to note too was just to kind of put a little things in perspective, the type of person that we're dealing with as well is following the, the initial ambush of the deputy. Um, the team that I'm currently on, another the county SWAT team was out on surveillance on the vehicle itself within an apartment complex. Again, this, the county that we work for and the city that we work for is one of the most violent cities in the, in the nation. And uh, the apartment complex where it was located was notorious for just being influenced by a lot of gang members too. The vehicle that was involved, a separate party that wasn't related to the initial incident comes out, they apprehend him and he has uh, an additional firearm on him as well. So again, they were going back and forth of who was going to take over the case. Um, ultimately, the decision was, we're not going to do anything tonight. We're going to pick it up tomorrow. So I leave, go to my normal duties the following day. Uh, Sometime during like mid-afternoon, I get notified by one of our team leaders basically saying like, hey, they've located Alakong, it's our case. We need to start heading towards Hemet where he was located. Uh, Hemet for where the, again, we work for San Bernardino City within just within Riverside County, the next neighboring county next to us, uh, like a 30-minute basically drive time to our city's jurisdiction. I started heading out there, out there after getting permission from one of my sergeants, too, who was ex, an ex-SWAT guy, too, as well. During this time, as I'm getting there, they say, okay, never mind, dude. He's, he's in route back to San Bernardino. We think he's going to come back to San Bernardino, so meet back at the station. I get to the station where I meet with our attack medic, Spencer Bumball, and we start kind of discussing what we're going to be dealing with. Um, from there, we, we basically 
get tasked with some sort of uh, vehicle takedown to try to apprehend him at his residence itself. Again, in one of the notorious areas, our whole Cyrus City is notorious, so it's kind of doesn't really put much into perspective. But it's a, uh, it's basically on the far outskirts of our city. It's which geographically, it's the furthest point within our municipality to the nearest trauma centers. With that being said, too, it's the location of itself is a notorious gang area, where there's only a few couple ways to get in and out, and it's all heavily gang influenced. That was a big red flag too, which I should have, I should have paid more attention to these little kind of these little triggers. I kind of could accumulate to kind of the to compound to the type of individual that we're really dealing with. Yeah. So, I mean, just, just to clarify, this guy shot a deputy or, you know, tried to execute a deputy and then he went to work. Yeah. So in that way he tried to try to execute the deputy was just, I mean, again, this is a hypervigilant, the most dedicated attacker. These are like besides some radicalized group or organization, like you, you don't ask. Like that's one thing I will respect this guy for is the amount of, is how vigilant he was, um, to be able to make those type of decisions and to execute those accurately. I saw the vehicle after too, of the deputy that was involved. And I mean, you know, I'm talking accurate gunfire all through the headrest, and it's I'm I'm to this day I don't know how he survived with especially the amount of injuries that he did have. That's a miracle. I mean, to have 39 AK-47 rounds shot at you from close range and not die is just. Yeah. That's that's the first miracle of this case. Yeah, I'm talking the vehicle looked like Swiss cheese. Yeah. Like it's, and I'm talking right through the driver's side of the vehicle itself. So, okay, so he's coming back to San Bernardino. You guys pull the team together. Yes. So we have a small element team in the van itself with some different contingencies and marked vehicles. The idea was to try to apprehend him before he got into his residence located in what we classify as like the Rainbow Reedy area, which is the 21st Street, like just gangster cycle hood to try to apprehend him there. Again, to put some things in perspective too, which is some things, red flags, which I should have been more cognizant of is like we've had officers involved shooters in that, that place where you, where they try to lynch. Like it's, you have every single person that comes out and I mean, it's, it's violent. Like you're on skirmish line, just trying to watch every single corner because there's, there's armed, essentially gang members everywhere. Again, red flag, I sh- that should have been a place I probably wouldn't want to try to apprehend the suspect too. Uh, just because of how easy it is for them to get to different locations as well, just because they're like more townhome style residences that are just lined uh, in a specific direction, a pattern. From there, um, he doesn't end up coming to the location itself and starts doing, he goes to an alternate residence, uh, again, within the city and county of San Bernardino. Uh, he stays there for a short duration. Again, we have our airship that's above him, that's a fixed wing that's keeping, that's monitoring surveillance on him as well. He gets out of the vehicle that he was transported from work and then another individual arrives um what he was later identified as is like a like a hood uncle it's just some sort of like another i guess i don't even know if a mentor yes that he gets picked up by him and then they start going to all these different locations so they go to like four different locations within a small proximity yeah these big red flags based with all the counter surveillance too that I should have been more wary of and I should have been more vocal about too. But again, I I I went on the realm of just trying to trying to find the explanation because it is to, that's not out of the norm for San Bernardino too. This is what they a lot of them do, especially these these notorious gangsters. They just they're so spot on with this too. That's just their normal normal day to day is where they do counterfeits because they're usually wanted some wanted vigilant. Yeah, I mean, a guy knows he shot a deputy the day before. He knows people are looking for him. He runs a counter-surveillance program to protect himself. 
Yes. And he was, unre- un- unbeknownst to us, and well, we should have just anticipated that he was, he already made every single officer. And he was already, he already knew officers were on him. He already picked out the vehicles that were involved, that were doing the surveillance. And again, this is what we're talking about, like a truly dedicated, someone that's, like is the most elite, like you have the most elite operator and they function at that different, that type of capacity. That's the other side of it. They function at that type of capacity. Who's a tier one dirt bag. You can yeah, you can say that. So he does all this counter surveillance uh, through again, through like a small middle immediate area uh, where he finally reaches to a specific street where he, they make like a turn into again, like at a high rate of speed. And this is stuff that's not going to relate to us as well. Cause it would change Again, I wouldn't have changed a lot of things. It's just been more red flags to notice is kind of the type of driving too is because we can't see it. We're just getting stuff that's getting broadcast over our channel. They park along a curbside. Again, this should have been like a huge red flag for me is why are they doing that? Why are they parking along this curbside? What I think it was is they parked there. He was he was trying to set us up. He was, in, he was anticipating just to kill all of us and then probably flee over the next wall line. That's what I imagine he was probably going to do. So... As we basically get the green light, like this is where we're going to do the takedown. You couldn't ask for a better backdrop, though, as well. It's kind of one of the the silver linings with it um, is as we make that final turn, too, is we had a specific plan in place. Um, once we contacted the vehicle, again, a lot of this stuff wasn't getting relayed to as far as what the, the airship above us was seeing, too, is because he had his hand on the gun already. He was looking back, just waiting for us. So as we come to contact the vehicle, doing like a uh, like a vehicle containment technique, he is, he's already exited out the vehicle and he starts firing. And I'm talking accurate gunfire too, basically upper thoracic of where we're all positioned. So let me let me just reset for a second. So he's he and his his hood uncle are pulled over on the side of the road. The airship spots him, identifies that. You guys decide that that's where you're going to take him down. You're in a van. Van pulls up and hits the passenger, the driver's side door. So he's in the passenger seat of the car. Yes. And the van the van hits the driver's side door, and you guys begin to exit the van. Yes. Okay. And he exits the car immediately. I mean, you can see in the surveillance video, you watch him pull the gun out as you're pulling up. So, I mean, he's... He's decided this is going to be his last stand, apparently. Yes. And as he exits the car, he begins firing at the van door as you guys are going to exit? Yes. Okay. So, Jordan, you're the first one out the door. Yeah. So, um, walk me through it. You you open the van door. You guys hit hit the car, open the van door, and what happens? So, uh, before that, as we approach, we hit hit the car for the... I think they call it bumping the purpose of it is to throw the occupants inside whatever vehicle that you're bumping off because it's supposed to be a surprise technique to it's where a diversionary yeah technique. they're they're sitting there and then all of a sudden their car gets hit and then once they're figuring that out we're getting in position so it kind of gives you an advantage but like chris pointed out the problem was we had no advantage because we had no element of surprise he was watching us the whole time in the rearview mirror with his hand on the gun so by the time we execute the bumping technique his hand his left hand is already on the door and uh, he already has a gun in his other hand. So he exits the car as we're doing the bump technique. And another problem with this van that we're using is the door is doesn't work right. It, it's had malfunctions for years and years and years. We've known about it. 
So the problem is I have to hold the door partially open. I can't close it because if you close it, that door is notorious for not wanting to open again. And you can't have that during that situation. You can't have it all the way open because he'll see us coming and he'll see guys all the way down the road. We'll expose ourselves way too early, earlier than we want it to. So I'm holding the door partially open as we approach this. Um, looking back, I don't know how I'm supposed to hold a 100-pound van door when you slam it closed or when you slam against an object all that 100 pounds goes flying forward and i was a strong guy and i i I couldn't hold it closed so as we execute the bumping technique that van door slams shut i fall directly onto my face i think ernie fell next to me i think you maintained your balance chris um so i fall instantly instinctively i didn't even tell myself to do this just instinctively i spring up open up the door and at that point i'm looking down the barrel of his gun um i jump out of the van i remember looking down at the ground to make sure i didn't eat shit as as i jump out making sure like my feet were on the ground and i remember looking up and sighting my rifle and i at, at that time i just remember being hit multiple times as i'm doing this i remember feeling the heat feeling the impacts feeling I think I felt my arm break. I didn't feel the second one until I landed on the ground, but I felt one of my arms break, and I take an instinctive step to my right to get out of the way. Um, I didn't even consciously remember trying to sight him on my gun. I just remember taking a step to my right and then getting hit in my femur, and then i uh, that's when I fell. And I kind of landed on my front side and then kind of rolled to my back. And I remember at one point trying to push myself off the ground, and that's when I realized both my arms were broken. I already knew my leg was broken. That's when I realized I'd been hit in my stomach. I could feel my shoulder burning. I knew, it, I knew I'd been hit in my shoulder. Um, that's when I kind of realized the extent at which I'd been wounded, and I knew at that point, and I was kind of relying on everybody else around me. So, so, so you you actually get out of the van, Chris. You're still in the van, right? Yes. So you're you're George first out the door. You're second out the door. Yes. After we basically made the contact with the vehicle, he's already exiting too. And again, you see this perfectly in, in the video surveillance too, is is he starts firing immediately before the, essentially the door is open because of the issues that were that arose. I remember I remember as the door's getting open, you just you see the gun just you're looking straight down the barrel again within a close proximity to again, just straight CQB, close quarter paddle. And then he's just he's just firing. And then as as Jordan's getting out of the way, I get I get struck, and I remember I remember that feeling too. It was just like I immediately got so mad. So he's he again he's shooting. That was one thing that was like again you have like these different a lot of the different during like these big instances. For me, it's always like something that's really really heightened. For me, this time it was the it was the the auditory like the sound of it was like it sounded like explosions. So as he's firing again, it was a ten mil too. So. As he's as he's firing, I get shot. Uh, Jordan essentially is running the ride. And these are just fundamentals. And this is one thing that we will, that I want to just reach to the the viewer too is a lot of these components and these things that are that are practiced isn't just applicable to one type of scenario or operation. It's, these are concepts and principles when it's in its basic form is what shifts it shifts the reactionary gap into our favor. We're always going to be behind the curve too. We're always going to have what they always they always quantify as like that second and a half perception reaction time too. Even when you like people say there's dead to rights, there's a perception reaction time. Then you have to adjust for that. 
when it comes down to that old dogfighting theory is the UDA theory, like the observe, orient, decide, and act. That's where they get that sick in the half too, is we're always going to be behind the curve no matter what. We have to perceive the threat and then we have to react accordingly to it. Well, in this case, he's firing at you before you even open the door. Yes. And then this is one thing that Jordan did was, these are these are the fundamental components of CQB is essentially using your momentum and your tempo to run in a, a, in a specific direction that shifts the angle too. So now he, it's instead of it just being a one-on-one gunfight, what it was from one threshold to the suspect itself, is Jordan allowed it to be a two-on-one gunfight, three-on-one gunfight by creating that angle and distance. And those are just fundamentals. These are taking to like the most basic foundation of a lot of these different types of tactics. So Jordan runs, I don't know what point, I, I think it was like right when the door got open, that's where I got shot. Um, I see him and he's running and like, he's the suspect's running laterally or moving laterally too. I engaged the suspect and I remember watching him just fall. It was like a light switch. Yeah, once I saw the suspect fall, my first, my initial, I just had to get to Jordan. I heard Jordan screaming. And another thing that, again, was like my, first, again, my, for some reason, my hearing was just like elevated. And this, this incident itself was I could hear him and I was like, I got to get to Jordan. I have to get to Jordan. So I immediately ran to Jordan and I was trying to just try to triage him as quickly as I could. And the first thing that popped into me was arm. His arm was bleeding really, really, really bad. And initially, like I was looking at like the bigger limbs too itself. I was looking at his chest and we were wearing all black too. Um, but his arm we're wearing, luckily at this time, it was just, we were wearing short sleeve sh- uh, polo shirts. So I, his arm was bleeding so bad. I was like, all right, I got to triage his arm. Like it was gushing blood. So I took on my tourniquet. I started uh, applying it to his right arm. And then during that time, um, like a bunch of different, uh, different people started showing up. These people from these different types of task force and units too that were involved in the whole investigation. They started getting on scene along with some of our other different traffic operators too as well. And then at that point, I remember thinking to myself was, was like, I knew I got shot. I mean, it's for those that say like they didn't know they got hit. I don't know how that works. Like you must be at a different elevated response. But I was like, I haven't died yet. And at that time I thought it was extremely delayed too. It was like, I haven't bled out yet, so I must be all right. So once all the people started getting, I saw Spencer get there too. And that was after Spencer got down there, I was like, my job's done. Spencer's going to handle it. I remember thinking that too, is like, I can't, he's, he's got it. So then um, I kind of uh, pulled myself away and I started asking other officers if they have any tourniquets just because I can tourniquet myself. Again, like I, I remember thinking, I was like, I haven't died yet, so I must be fine. After that, um, you can see, and this is, this is the thing too, is, is that we, we, we preach a lot of these things to different officers and everybody always says like, oh yeah, when you get when you get confronted with a truly dedicated combatant, it's like oh you just you eliminate the threat, and then you move on to triage and do all these different types of things. It's uh, it's a lot easier said, but what does that truly look like? And in that moment, you got to really understand what those moments truly look like. Yeah, I mean to put it in scale, you know, because you've described it, you know, obviously slowly, but this entire event from the suspect's foot hitting the ground to the suspect is shot in the field and down you're down you know you're you're putting a tourniquet on jordan and that entire event is 22 seconds and the shooting part of it is about four seconds yes so like you know you talk about engaging a, a dedicated combatant uh 30 rounds under four seconds yes like it, it is it is difficult to describe how violent this encounter was and how quickly you know, as you guys engaged, how quickly you came under fire, 
and how quickly the entire event was over. Um, and yet, you know, as you're describing it, it obviously plays out in your brain more slowly. And each of you guys have told me, you know, that, that you have this kind of slowed perception, which is one of the things you talk about in traumatic events is, is, you know, a, a compression of versus, you know, a, a slowing of time. But, you know, just to give the listener perspective, the shooting took three seconds and had 30 some odd rounds swapped between the two of you. Jordan has hit eight times. You're hit once. Um, it, it's hard to explain how quick and violent the whole thing was until you see the video. Yeah. And that's one thing to remember too, is how much the body can truly endure too, is, is people just say like, oh yeah, you can just, you can fire and that just eliminates the threat, but it's not, it's not no. true like that. Especially hunters that, that hunt too, they understand it basically like in human anatomy and physiology, what biologically, how much your body can endure under that type of stress. It's, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, Jordan's a perfect testament to that. You know, he was shot eight times. And, and is sitting here with us having a conversation. So we are truly ridiculously durable. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I, I put that a lot to his physical his physical capability too, as well as, I mean, he was at the peak. His abs had abs at that time. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I then want that it, left in there. <laughs> it's, it's, ama- it's amazing that the bullets were even able to penetrate the muscle. Well, that yeah, that thing too. And then they obviously the surgical scar goes right down the center of his abs. It makes him even bigger. So it's, yeah, I mean, the strategy. Yeah, it was a win-win for him on that I, one. <laughs> I do got to say that when I was hit in the stomach, the bullet went in through one side and failed to exit throughout the other side of my abs because the muscle actually So what you're saying is the muscle's actually so caught the bullet. My muscle yeah. stopped a 10 mil round. Got it. Fantastic. Say that. I Fantastic. think that was more the, the cummerbund on the type of armor that you use. <laughs> no, no, no that. Muscle. <laughs> it's awesome. Okay, so so then let's pick back up. So, so Jordan, you exit. Chris exits. Your teammate continues to engage the suspect until he's down. You, you fire at him um, once or twice, and then your teammate is continuing to engage him as you're, you're turning to, to care for Jordan. The suspect is down at this point. Yes. Uh, one of your teammates closes on him to ensure that he's, you know, ineffective and, and neutralized. Um, walk me through, again, putting the tourniquet. What, what, when, you, when you first come up on Jordan, what do you see? Uh, the screaming again. That was, that was the big thing for me. And then just the amount of blood that was already coming out of his arm, too. It was like, oh, it was like his arterial. That was the first thing I thought. And again, I'm, I don't have the capabilities like someone like Spencer and stuff like that, but you, you start to, a lot of the training and stuff like that, that he's preached to us, it's when it becomes, and this is one thing that resonated with me too, is what he discusses is a lot of this stuff becomes, like he, he worked on Jordan, like it was just like another, another individual, another victim on the street for him, another mope, someone that was just insignificant to him without the, and that just shows you the type of caliber of one, his capabilities. And then two, just the, we'll say like a lot of the hard skills that's probably ingrained with him over three decades. I don't know. He's maybe four decades now. He's getting old, <laughs> but four again, yeah, decades. that's, that's been able to just transform who he's as a, as a person too. And I, I, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm swayed a little way, but I, I think so highly of them both just personally in their everyday life. And you see that in their families too, as well. And you can see the type of characters and attributes that have just been kind of kind of developed in their kids is and then their their physical capabilities too. And then I mean like Spencer's one of the best shooters when he was on our team and one of the most athletic people I've ever seen too. He's just he's just naturally capable. 
Um, Jordan, not so much though. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you guys had a, an organized tech med program prior to this, right? Like it's not just that you were training individual team members. You actually had an embedded tech medic with you. Yes. Which is Spencer. So talk me through, talk me through that. What did, what did that, you know, what, what capability did that bring to the team? Oh, I mean, it was, I, I believe it to my core is that saved Jordan's life. Okay. So, so Chris, you put the tourniquet on Jordan, start to control the bleeding and Spencer runs up. Yes. So let's pick up with you, Spence. Like you, you at that point, start, start me with like where you were when the shooting goes down and then walk me through what happens. So while part of the team was in the van, uh, they were getting closer to the subject. And while he was running counter, uh, the sergeant at the time had called off the two marked units that were supposed to trail the van in. And I was in an unmarked Dodge Durango that had been converted into like an ambulance. And so I was only one man in there. I didn't have a partner with me at that moment. So I decided to hang back with the marked units. And um, we were probably two or three blocks away, maybe maybe a quarter mile away from these guys. Um uh, when we heard the airship put out that they were making contact with the subject, shots were fired. And that was something that Chris and I had talked you know, right when we saw each other at the station. You know, Chris said, you know what's going to happen today. This guy's going to shoot it out with us. And I said, absolutely. Anyone that saw that video from the sheriff's deputy, like we knew what was coming. And so the airship put it out, fully expected there to be shots fired what I wasn't ready for. And we were on it. It was the two marked units and I were code three up the street, hundred miles an hour and, uh, moving towards these guys. And then they said, you have officers down. And I knew which guys were in that van. You know, these two guys specifically, you know, our families hang out together and we hang out together. And it was just like, Holy shit, here we go. And uh, I arrived on scene. I parked, my vehicle and grab my bag. Uh, my bag is specific to just ALS equipment and things that these guys don't carry. So it's more advanced than a basic IFAC. And I get there to find Chris putting a tourniquet on Jordan's leg after he had put one on his arm. And uh, I think I said to Chris, I go, what's wrong with you? Because I'm shot. So you should take care of that. He said, okay. And he, he kind of leaves and I get in there and, um, Everyone, what we had trained these guys to do was, hey, start finding wounds, start getting clothes off, start getting his equipment off, because that's all stuff that just takes time. And we want to make sure that we know what we're working with before we load them up into my car. And so that's what these guys were doing. They were finding wounds. They were putting tourniquets on. He had two tourniquets on his, one on each arm, uh, one on his left leg. And then I started kind of doing a head-to-toe, hands-on assessment, like, touching everything i remember right after i talked to chris i look at jordan and jordan's screaming i can't breathe i thought oh shit like this is getting worse as we're moving along and uh, it was just an officer who was pulling on jordan's helmet as hard as they could (laughs) to get it off of his head (laughs) i do remember that (laughs) somebody tried to yank my head off so, so it's not bad enough he's been shot eight times somebody's yeah. gonna choke him out with his own helmet and so to my relief he was breathing fine he was just getting choked and so we hit that buckle and uh and the helmet came off 
and then started cutting everything off we could cut his body armor off um cut his belt off and then guys started working up the pant legs and uh the wound that stood out to me was the one in his abdomen and there was a on his left lower side of his abdomen he had a the abdominal wall was sticking out a little bit so we could see like his intestines coming out protruding from his abdomen and to me that was a big red flag like this meant we were either going to stay on scene for a little while longer while i put an abdominal tourniquet on him or we we're going to load him up and go so like chris had said it seemed like we were there forever like i was working my hands were going fast i like we were doing all the things we needed to do but I just couldn't get out of there fast enough with Jordan. You know, we just could not get him off of that street fast enough. And guys were repositioning my vehicle, bringing up the backboard that we have, and I'm trying to palpate his abdomen and make sure we didn't have anything that was that was bleeding. Anything major like his aorta that was bleeding out in his stomach because that would have called for putting that tourniquet on uh, his abdomen, which is something that comes with its own set of risks putting that on means that he really only like we have to get to the hospital in 20 minutes with that on or we cause other problems for him and his long-term survivability so he didn't have any signs of any swelling in his abdomen anything like that and it, it all felt really good like there there wasn't blood floating around there but we had also i'd also only been on scene 20 seconds after it happened and Oh, there just maybe wasn't enough time. So it's one of those things. We got him on the backboard. And the guys picked him up, and uh, we started moving towards the car. And the driver, another SWAT officer, was in the car. He was heads up, and he hopped in my vehicle, which is something we had trained. Like, hey, here's the keys. Here's where they are. Here's how you guys get into it. Um, you know, and and put it in gear and just the, the hangups on a vehicle they don't normally drive, right? You know, where the lights are and everything. And so we get Jordan loaded up and we start driving down to the hospital and I get in the back and after moving them, we always train like, Hey, check your tourniquets, check your treatments. And the great thing was, was Jordan was talking the whole time. Didn't matter what he was talking about. He was just talking. <laughs> so screaming yelling cousin. yeah i was happy to hear it if he was talking that was just one less thing that i had to worry about in that moment and so uh, i start with his right arm which was furthest away from me i'm on his left side you're in the back of the durango I'm, I'm in the back of the durango next to him yeah so his head is behind the driver and his feet are at the tailgate of the durango Got it. and then i'm sitting next to him in that rear passenger seat um so yeah, we're in the back and I start going over everything again. And his shoulder, he has a wound in his shoulder like a through and through, too high for a tourniquet. And it's it's bleeding, but it's not something that, it's not bleeding terribly bad. Not something I'm going to pack right now. I'm going to continue checking everything else. His right arm was bleeding significantly after we had moved him. So I tightened up that tourniquet, uh, got that controlled left arm, uh, tightened it up some more. And then his left leg was also bleeding after moving him. So I ended up putting a second tourniquet on that leg. Um, got that tightened down. And I go, hey, man, where do you hurt? 
which is kind of a silly question to ask a guy that's been shot eight times, but he goes, it hurts between my legs. And I go, shit, like anywhere else. And he said, no, that's what hurts the most. And so got all his clothes off at that point and checked everything to make sure there's no other blood that we were missing, any other wounds that need to be packed. And uh, it was it was an intimate moment, I think, for us. But at least you looked me in the eyes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot to manage, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> but after that, um, and we're driving. We so let me back up. Prior to this, as we're moving locations with this suspect, like I'm reworking which hospital we're going to go to because we have a couple trauma centers. We have two trauma centers within two miles of each other. So which one's going to be easier for us to get to at you know two or three in the afternoon with traffic? So I'm trying to keep that up on my iPad that I've mounted in in my vehicle, and um, it's like a 30 minute drive for us with traffic. About a 12 miles, 30 minutes is what it says, and so. I have that in my mind that I know we're moving fast because the guy driving is like, hey, he's calling out turns and bumps and dips and we're hitting them hard. And every time Jordan's like in more and more pain. So we're a couple minutes into this ride. I get on my radio and I call um, our dispatch, the, the fire department dispatch. And I ask them to give the trauma center a heads up. Like, hey, I need you to let them know we're en route with an officer that's been shot multiple times. Uh, ETA is about 10 minutes. And that's something that they're typically able to handle for us. If I don't have time to call the hospital direct, which is a much lengthier report, I can just call our dispatch and they'll make that happen, make that notification to the trauma center. So our dispatch center was unable to make that notification because the trauma center had just moved to a new wing of the hospital. So they didn't have the updated phone number. So as we're driving I remember, Freddie, I'm getting ready to start an IV in Jordan's neck because I couldn't start one in either of his arms. Um, yeah, tourniquets on everything else, practically. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, everything had tourniquets on. And um, so I'm going for an IV in his neck, short of putting an IO, uh, an IV into his bone, into his sternum. And so he had a really good vein in his neck at that, at that point. I go, this is what we're going to do. And... Tell the driver, I go, hey, I'm going to start an IV. And he goes, we're going to hit a dip. I said, okay. And so we hit this dip, and we really hit that dip. Like, <laughs> that was a dip. That was airborne yeah. for a little bit. <laughs> and I remember my hand went up and stuck the needle, the catheter, right into the headrest of the passenger seat. I'm just like, this could not fucking get any worse. <laughs> and uh, Which, it wasn't a big deal. It was just one of those, like, those little moments that sort of crushes you and you're like, God, it was going so good. <laughs> and then, so there's another catheter right next to where I'm working. I had all my stuff set up. And uh, so I open it and we end up getting the line in his neck. And something that presents with trauma patients is how profuse and how sweaty they are. And that was Jordan, you know, just, he was ashen. He was pale. He was profusely sweating, and so nothing was really sticking to him. So I had to hold this IV in place. I had started an IV drip of a medication to help with clotting 
And so that was hanging in my car, and that's a medication we have to give over a certain period of time. And so it's called TXA. So we put the TXA in the bag, and the bag is now flowing into Jordan's neck, which is something that is, if he does have a significant bleed in his abdomen, this is something that's going to help his body maintain the clots that it's making. Um, I think we asked Freddie to turn the heater on. Freddie was driving, and uh, because we're just trying to keep him warm, get the TXA on. And then uh, I think shortly after that, we ended up making it to the ER in about nine minutes. Oh, the, so, the wrong ER entrance, but yeah. Yeah, the wrong <laughs> ER entrance. So, Yeah, I think there's actually a story associated with the wrong ER entrance that uh, is kind of a funny one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we pull up to the old ER entrance. And this had been, they had moved the ER within days. And it's something that, but we should have known something I should have known that that is 100% on me. Like that update should have been pushed out to these guys. And Freddie goes, we're here. And I look up, I go, we're at the wrong ER. And he goes, where's the right ER? And there's a security guard, you know, my car's got lights on it. We're with a convoy of multiple other police cars and some security guards in the parking lot. And he goes, you guys are at the wrong place. And Freddie rolls down the window and I roll down my window and we pretty much kidnap this guy. We say, get in the car right now. Like just get in the car. And he didn't know what to do. And so I'm opening my door to go and get him. And Freddie's calling him over and he ends up getting in the car. He's sitting on my rifle, on my helmet, on another med bag I have. And he's, he's a bigger, bigger guy. And he's trying to fit into this car. He struggled. <laughs> so we're, we're all yelling at him. His day's going to get worse. <laughs> it, it, it gets worse in a moment. So we, uh, he's directing us, directing Freddie. And I'm talking to Jordan. I'm trying to keep this IV in his neck. Nothing, the tape's not sticking. And uh, I'm like, Jordan, just keep talking to me, dude. Like, we're getting through this. We're almost there. Like, you know, hang on. And we make, I'm looking up. Now I'm paying attention to where we're going. Like, this guy's giving us the right directions. And so tells us to turn left. And they says, turn left again, and it's right there. I mean, we were 300 yards off, but just a long drive on the road. And, you know, it took a little while with traffic and stuff. And Freddie just goes in the wrong lanes of traffic, goes opposing, and like in the bicycle lane. And I just hear screaming. And I look down, I'm like, Jordan, it's, it's okay, dude, we're here. And it's the security guard screaming. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the security guard's screaming. Screaming the scream of a man yeah. who's been kidnapped and is now driving the wrong way into oncoming traffic with people he doesn't know. Yeah. 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 Arms people he doesn't yeah. know. <laughs> One of whom is bleeding profusely in the back. Yeah. With, a, with a random rifle poking him in the yeah. back that he's sitting on. Um, yeah. So we end up getting to the ER, uh, parked the vehicle, and Chris had gotten there just before us, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they knew Chris was there, uh, and then they bring a gurney out to my car. And so we open up the back and are pulling Jordan out, and it's another moment where we're just dropping guns out of the car. And like Jordan's gun belt and handgun or whole belt comes off of him in the parking lot, and uh, I'm letting these guys know, hey, he needs blood. Like You need to get the blood bank and get them get them going because Jordan's going to need it. And uh, And... Pretty much once we get into the hospital, the paramedic gives a, like a trauma handoff to the physicians and the nurses that are in charge, lets them know any 
history, medical history of the patient, any allergies, any medications, and most importantly, like where is he hit and what have I done to fix that? So it's a pretty quick thing. Um, but yeah, I just remember as soon as we got in there and they got to work on Jordan and it was a relief to me from doing that for so long when you know we were five, six minutes and him being in the trauma bay and they didn't just take him straight to surgery. And so you know that if, they're, if this hospital isn't taking him to the OR or performing surgical interventions, you know, there in the, the trauma bay, then like we're doing pretty good, you know, and the fact that he didn't lose consciousness and that these officers that were on scene were putting tourniquets on and finding bleeders right away. Like this, that was the stuff that really made a difference was everyone kind of doing their part to make sure he's okay. And through all the trainings and all the things that we've done, you know, guys like Chris just, yeah, he knew he was hit, but we knew Jordan was down. It was different. So when Chris is hit, like he he said, like it was different. I knew I was hurt, but I knew Jordan was down and needed help more than I did. And that's something that he said to me and that is you know, super impressive. But it's guys like that that stepped up and and really helped make the difference in this. This was a truly a team event, you know, when it comes down to just everything after the shooting, all the medical care, like every guy that put hands on Jordan had a part in it. You know, the guy that instead of, and I don't even know who it was, instead of just hanging out and trying to put a tourniquet on, like he knew to go to my car and get the backboard. You know, the guy that went to my car to move it into position so that we can get out of there a little quicker. Like stuff like that, those those spots that they trained to be in that they didn't hesitate to get themselves into, you know, to make sure that, you know, he had the best outcome possible. Yeah, I think... Uh... Two things struck me in watching the video. The first is how calm and professional the team was initially. And when when you arrive, the 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 team and you, it is very clinical. It's it's calm. I mean, everybody around the scene is running around freaking out, but the the team itself and you are calm deliberate everything is done in a specific order like it just it looked rehearsed it looked practiced it it was not a team surprised that somebody went down and having no idea what to do it was a team realizing okay this is what we trained for everybody do this and even the communication among the guys when when you look at the body worn is is calm um i mean obviously it's urgent but it's calm yeah, it's a different level with this group of guys. Um, like I was saying, everyone knows their job and they know everyone else's job. So if there's a gap to be filled, we have guys that are filling it. If there's work to be done, they're they're finding it. And it was the same with him being down as it is, you know, us making an entry on a warrant. So and just that day, it was, I like Chris and I had said, he was the first guy I saw and we knew. Like we knew this was not going to be something that was just going to, this wasn't going to be a guy that was just going to put his hands up and be like, Hey, you got me. No. Yeah. You, you watch the video. It's very clear. He, he intended to die that day and was going to take everybody he could with him. Yeah. And so that was when I was leaving the fire station, I took and 
few extra minutes and got everything ready. Like anything extra in my car that didn't need to be there wasn't in there. You know, and See, everything was set up where it needed I to think, be. I think there's there's a thousand like one of the reasons that I wanted to sit down with you guys is there are a thousand little lessons learned here that 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 you know, by all accounts, this day could have had a very, very different ending. And so one of the things I want to do is I want to sit, I want to go through kind of from a team standpoint, from a medical standpoint, what are our lessons learned here? What are the things that other teams need to know? Because had you guys not been as well prepared, we would not be sitting here with Jordan. I think that's a very safe thing to say, considering the the nature of his injuries and the number of his injuries. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think there was anything that I did that was spectacular that another paramedic couldn't have done. No, I I what, truly disagree with that point. Well, but one the, of the things I love about all three of you, <laughs> none of you, none of you have taken responsibility for anything. Uh, you know, Chris being a perfect example. Um, he will not mention this, so I will, that he was given the Cato Award for Valor for taking a gunshot wound to the leg and using his own tourniquet on Jordan, um, which was which was a bold move, betting that somebody else would have a tourniquet. Um, but, like, it, it is... Anybody that watches the video in this sees a number of heroic acts. I mean, Chris being the first one that really stands out at you as a guy that shot through the leg, taking a tourniquet to put it on his teammate and, and reacting that quickly. And, you know, I think that it's very easy in these kind of situations to overlook the individual acts of heroism. And a lot of those things happened before the event. Yeah. This was all stuff that, you know, just these, this team saying that, yeah, we want to take a guy who, his first job wasn't being a cop. It was being a paramedic and a firefighter. And we're going to send him through the police academy and send him through SWAT school and put him on entries. And he's going to be embedded in this team. Uh, having a paramedic that close to the team, is it's that timeline. It's how much blood has he lost? How fast do we get the TXA on? How fast do we get him you know, out of that, away from that point of injury to the trauma center? Like, yeah, and any other paramedic could have done paramedic things that day. But the fact that they had the trust in me to be that close and with the team, you know, and I, I told Jordan, like, one of my regrets with this whole thing was when they said, hey, just unmarked vehicles only. Like, yeah, maybe I should have stayed. Maybe I should have pulled up to one of those marked cars and be like, hey, one of you get in with me. Let's go. Because now at least this guy has to make a decision. You know, it's either the white van or this gray car. And I got a shooter in my seat next to me, you know, or or I'm in the seat, whoever's shooting, but we have another gun on him. You know, that could have been, maybe Jordan was only shot twice. Maybe he wasn't shot at all. There's all those what ifs, right? I don't know, man. Having watched the video, uh, unless, unless you guys shot the guy before he got out of the car, uh, I don't think there's much you could have done because by the time anybody could have engaged him, he was almost out of rounds. Yeah. Or you jump out of your car and you get shot and then we're all scrambling trying to figure out how to save the medic. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Which would not have gone as well. <laughs> but, but, <that's, laughs> but I think that's one of the things that we train for is we don't train for everybody. Usually, I mean, def 
people define success, I mean, it's ambiguous in itself, but they always base their their type of tactics on the best case scenario, not the worst. And he's a truly dedicated combatant. And just to, to piggyback off what Spencer was saying is he says any paramedic could have done this. No, I disagree. I've seen a lot of different types of paramedics and they do get exposed to a lot of different type of caliber of traumas within our city. But what he did in those moments and how calm he was, because I remember this thinking this to myself too, was I remember looking at him and being like, thank God he's here. And I remember just thinking that to myself, being like, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have felt that calm within it. But see, that goes back to to training. That goes yeah. back to knowing the capabilities of your teammates and preparing for worst case scenario, right? It's like you said, it's very easy to train for best case scenario. Really, but, you are preparing for worst case scenario. Yes, but that's just the higher level of learning that like you have someone, I'm just using these guys specifically, like Spencer, where he's a higher level of learning. Like, yeah, he runs the paramedic tab and everything like that, but he's not a paramedic. He's he's leaps and bounds what you would classify as like a typical paramedic just because of his capabilities and within those types of moments itself too, especially when you have some sort of, you have a lot of emotional connection to, again, the person that you're triaging. Yeah, that's one of the most amazing things about this whole thing is that the three of you were close friends prior. And and so it is, it's, it's you know, your brother's down. Yeah, I remember one of the things you told me afterwards, one of the things you felt guilty about, Spence, you said, like, I felt guilty that I treated you like I would treat anyone else. And, you know, it, it wasn't just you. It was the whole team around me. Everybody was just calm, just putting on tourniquets. It literally felt like a training exercise. I mean, I'm screaming and my legs exploded, but it, like everybody else, their faces, I we've all seen them in training. We've all played the officer down before, you know, and their faces were identical to that day of just like, we have trained this a thousand times. And I know you said you felt guilty about it, but that's just your training kicking in. And I'm glad you didn't get emotional and, and all that. You did exactly what you needed to do, to do that day. And even John, you said it, it was clinical. That's, that's exactly what it was. It was just clinical that day. When it came to the tac med stuff so i thought that was interesting yeah that was one of the things that uh my wife and i talked a lot about was she's like how was jordan in the pack and i'm like i don't know yeah <laughs> she goes what do you mean you don't know i go, i don't know he wasn't great but that wasn't my focus was uh having a conversation with you back there while we were doing this like it was it was bigger than that but i think in that moment looking back on it i'm like oh yeah i could have been a little bit like no. no i wouldn't have changed it yeah another thing too that um we didn't talk about that i want to bring up is that selflessness that shipley showed at the beginning right where he takes his tourniquet off and comes to me and starts using that well that just didn't stop there he got to the hospital first because he was in a marked unit and uh, the driver got him there first and all the er staff because i talked to him afterwards the only thing they had heard because there was like a lot of telephone going on was that there was one officer down and they didn't know how bad it was and that's all they knew. They didn't know ETAs. They didn't know anything. So when Shipley shows up, all the hospital staff comes rushing out to go to Shipley. And they're like, hey, let's go. Let's get you on the gurney. And Shipley's like, no, that's like, just wait. Like somebody else is coming. Like, get off me. And he, you told the initial hospital staff, like, hey, just wait. Like my partner's right around the corner or something like that, yeah, right? Get, get Jordan. Yeah. So that's just another example of just that selflessness of just like, hey, no, I'm okay, but my partner's coming. He he needs you. I'll wait for the, the nurses that you don't need, you know, so. Which is, is just a further continuation of Chris's remarkable calm under fire that yeah. you see in watching the video 
Uh, he is the only person I've ever known that's been shot and was telling the other people to calm down uh, <laughs> while they were working on him. And, 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 and was concerned about his rifle. And, you know. He did a hair flick too. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a you know, little brief hair fix. And yeah, I, I think that... Um, okay, so one of the things I would love to talk about with you guys is kind of lessons learned from this um you know whether it's individual or team or you know tac med um spencer why don't we start with the the tactical medical program what do you what do you think you guys did right i think some of the stuff that we did good that made us successful in that day um was definitely the ownership that the guys on the team took to when it came to the medical part of it uh everyone was willing to carry their equipment and keep it on them, make sure it was, you know, up to date and in good condition. And they were pretty religious about that. And every time we had a training, at least once a month or every training day, would be twice a month, we would throw something in there and they would say, Hey, we want to do an officer down in this scenario or in this scenario. And it wasn't something that took away from, you know, the main topics we were training on. It was just a, Here's a reminder, like, be ready for this. And we would randomly put those in there and the guys would perform. It was never one of those things where they're like, oh, we're doing this again. I think uh, the guys on this team understand how violent that city is and that we have that potential when we're going out there. And the ownership they took in it really made a difference. And understanding their role and every role there is to be filled in that incident and then so guys were just, like I was saying earlier, just looking for work. You know, wherever it was, you know, whatever needed to be done, they were making it happen. So, and then just the the training that we would put in as a team, specifically on the medical training days, which was a, you know, a 10-hour day of all medical stuff. You know, the the sergeants or the team leaders letting us have that training and then my partner, who was, you know, a medic, uh, he left the team before this, but he was the first medic into the Inland Regional Center. So Ryan Starling was the guy that really started this team down the right path. And then we got together about five years ago on the team and started working, you know, just to make it even better and make it a more solid program for these guys and and for us. And so I think that's kind of started a long time prior to this day. So, yeah, I think that success, you know, for lack of a better term on game day is not success on game day. It's yeah. success in every training prior to game day. Yeah. It was everything that every guy on that team had done, you know, the ones that were currently there and the ones that left, like all those guys putting in this effort, you know, specifically on the medical stuff made a big difference in the outcome for Jordan. But I... I'm sorry to interrupt you guys. I know he won't talk good about him or highly of himself or something like that. So that's where I'm going to chime in a little bit too, is you define like the game day. And that's a lot of the stuff that I think people forget is on your worst day, that's the best you're going to do. A lot of you have like a lot of these different types of, of people that I, I look up to too. And they discuss kind of these, these hard skills that you have set or already competent within your capabilities that you can resort to him because that on a cold day or a cold start, that's the best you're going to do. And for him, that's what kind of goes back to is, I don't know if it's nature or nurture. I think it has a lot to do with just the nature of who he is individually. But over the last 
I don't, I don't want to say his age too loud. Century? <laughs> Bro, I'm only 38. <laughs> oh, he said it. <clears throat> but over like, I mean, nature, so over the last almost four decades, he's going to be 40 years soon, the last four, four, <laughs> four decades is he's been able to to refine those skill sets that he has. And again, I, I believe it's a lot with this, the nature of who he is, and that, who he was born as. I mean, he had the foundation, but now he has those skill sets that he's just, he's enhanced and it becomes like a lot of the times we discuss like these, these subconscious behaviors that he's just so competent in little things where he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to think about it. Just like when you ask somebody just to drive from point A to point B is they'll get to that place and be like, oh shoot, I don't even remember driving there, but they're doing all this. They're, they're driving, they're driving rightfully. They're using their signals. They're stopping at the right points. They just don't recognize it because it's become so innate in their behavior that they've done it repeatedly over and over and over again. That's become subconscious to them. They don't have to resort to it. And that's where like within that medical capabilities the stuff that I would have to try to try to effectively think that he would just naturally do because he's he's honed those skills, those skill sets. Yeah, I mean but, it goes back to fundamentals, right? It's it's you know, you you one of my favorite sayings is you won't rise to the occasion, you'll fall to the level of your training. Yes. And, you know, so much of training is fundamental. And it's I think it is very easy for teams to get sucked into the exotic training paradigm where it's like, let's go do, you know, let's go, you know, shoot out of helicopters hanging from ropes or whatever. When really the basic fundamentals is where most, you know, all the debriefs I've ever attended, all the debriefs I've done, most of the time when a team falls apart, it's at a fundamental level. Oh, absolutely. And then you'll, so it's like you ask him, you'll all sit there and be like, hey, like to me, he's a master of his craft, but he's still, he's still a student. And that's where you recognize is he's just constantly learning. He's constantly getting better and he's, He's adapting. He's trying to make like Rich Devani always discusses. Like if you can make yourself one percent better in every single aspect, then you're just you're going to significantly compound your success rate. And then you have him just like he he won't discuss. It's like he he went through after we were just, we were talking about the whole incident itself. Is he's he started revising his entire. Well, he keeps it organized in itself just naturally, but he was going through revising his his vehicle over and over and over again just for the ever-changing components of what we're confronted with, anticipating the worst-case scenario. And again, that's a higher level of thinking, but that's based upon all his four decades of experience, about four decades of experience. But again, yeah, he's just, he's he's constantly looking to try to better something in every single aspect of his, of his capacity, I guess. Well, and I think that it, it you know, you mentioned something interesting there, which is that he's training for worst case scenario, right? I think another pitfall is, is you go into training every time you hit a resilient, you know, you hit a problem, something fails, stop. And one of the teams that I interviewed that, that survived a pretty hellacious shooting, not quite this bad, but pretty hellacious shooting. Um, they said that part of their culture was that they train through, like if they're playing Sims, they train through injury. You don't get shot and stop. You get shot and keep shooting. And he said, you know, initially that was kind of a controversial thing, but when one of our guys got shot in an operation, he didn't even hesitate. He kept pushing. And I think that if you if you train for best case scenario, when worst case scenario shows up, you're not prepared. No. Yeah, and that's one of the ways that we train, this team trained, was you just push through it. And one of the things we were able to get them to buy off on is, all right, you get to push through it, but when this shooting is done, we need to figure out who shot and go from there. 
So every time that engagement happened, we were having guys putting tourniquets on, evacuating them out of the house and working a way to get me from one room to that room or the other medics or however it was. But I think ultimately the thing that made the medical side super successful from, from my end was my goal was to shed my tasks. Like I have all these tasks that I need to do to make sure that this guy isn't bleeding anymore. And if I can give those to officers and this stuff we were doing through training, if I can say, Hey, you guys are doing tourniquets, you guys are cutting clothes off. You guys are looking for chest wounds and putting chest seals on. Like those are all things that I would like to have done before I get there. So even though I would make entry with this team, we would tell them the first 60 seconds is on you guys. So after that threat's down and the shooting's over, like it's on you guys to figure it out for a minute until I get from wherever I'm at to that room with you. And so taking those tasks off of my plate just makes it so there's there's less stuff I have to worry about and we can focus more on the advanced life support side of it instead of the the tourniquets and just the chest seals. So, and one more thing from the fire department side that I think in a roundabout way made a big difference was the fire department funds this program for the San Bernardino Police Department. And it's not a cheap program to have, but ultimately this has gone through a lot of different guys from the admin side on the fire department. And it just takes one guy to say no. We've been able to pitch it and each guy on our side has just said yes. You know, they see the need and they're willing to stick through it and and to eat the cost. And uh, that day, you know, it showed up. Like, this is the reason. Jordan's the reason that we have a program like this. So we get guys like that home, you know. And Chris, too. I heard he got shot. <laughs> That's the rumor. <laughs> he, no. he denies it. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I think but, you raise a really valid point, which is that, that ultimately it, it's a multi-agency thing. Right. Yeah. And, and the way that you have done this with a cooperation between the fire department and the police department, not only brings better advanced life support, but also embeds, you know, firefighter paramedic who is tactically trained with the team in a way that a police department probably wouldn't fund. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're finding that it's more and more acceptable for police departments to buy into it because of the the liability side of things, you know, they're willing to say, yeah, this takes some liability away from when we have a use of force to have a paramedic there. Um, but ultimately it's, it's a hard stretch to say, we're going to take guys firemen and put them on a SWAT team for a lot of places. But I, from seeing both sides of it, I think it's easier for a guy to recognize when he's in trouble, when you need to use force than it is for a guy to, be able to look at someone and say, this person's a critical patient. Like this person is going to die if I don't intervene or if we don't get something done or, or move in on this patient. That takes some time for paramedics to recognize that stuff throughout their career. I think it's sometimes it's much more clear cut to recognize when you're in imminent danger as a police officer. So from being a fireman for, you know, a paramedic for 15 years and then coming over to the police department side, uh, it seems, I don't want to say easier. It's definitely not easier, but it's, um, it's less of a stretch to train a guy to like go to the police academy and go to SWAT school than it is to send a guy to paramedic school and be like, these are all things you need to look out for. 
and how all your patients present because we're not just dealing with trauma. You know, we're checking out all these people that we serve warrants on their houses and they're having chest pain after they're having shortness of breath. We have a older guy on the team that might be having a medical problem or allergic reaction. So it's really the spectrum of what we're doing is much more than just trauma. Well, one of the things that, that we talked about offline that I think we should, you know, that seems appropriate here is that, that, you know, frugality can be a fault, right? It, it becomes very easy for administrations to look at situations and say, oh, you know, bear cats are really expensive. Drones are really expensive. Paramedics are really expensive and start to save, you know, save pennies, you know, is it penny smart dollar dumb? Um, I think it's, it's, it becomes very easy for administrations to cut complicated programs and cut technology and everything else. And, you know, I, I don't know what the paramedic program cost the, the, you know, the fire department and the police department combined for all the years that you've done it. I'm pretty sure Jordan thinks it was worth the money. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. I think we all think it's worth the money. Um, it's just what guys need to realize is that we can, we can spend all the money on this stuff, but if we're not willing to give guys the equipment they need or the training they need, and we're spending money on the wrong things, then we're not doing justice to the guys that are actually serving the warrants or going through the door. I, the team spending money or needing a second Bearcat or wanting better equipment isn't a bad thing. It means your guys are looking forward into the future and they're, they're seeing how these trends are going and really what they want to do with, with how they operate and how they work. And it, you know, we should spend more money to make sure these guys come home safe. I don't know how you put a number on that. It's hard to quantify, but. The thing you also do forget is we have, we have an obligation to the public too, as well by I'm, I'm more on the training side of the, of having the tools and the, the new top end types of instruments, stuff like that. The training is what's important. A lot of those hard skills is we have obligation to the public too. And because how prevalent a lot of these big, let's say mass casualty incidents are occurring now, you have these copycat cultures and then even worse, you have these radicalized terrorist organizations that are just infiltrated our, our, we'll say our, our country too. And a lot of people know it's like San Bernardino is a hub for terror, terrorist organizations on the West Coast. San Bernardino County, Riverside County, it's ground zero. Most people don't understand that. We've had, I mean, we've had the IRC, which was a big event in the last seven years now. And then a couple school shootings. And that's just becoming more and more prevalent. And because you have the skill sets that you've, you've trained and you've looked forward to the most updated type of training and to learn from your past experiences and other people's past experiences. Cause you have like, I mean, Columbine was a big one where it's just, I mean, that revised the whole priority of life scale. And then you have Valdi that just completely violated and look at the casualties that were inflicted. And I mean, those kids, like they have done nothing in this world to deserve that. And we also have that within our city too, is we have everything from higher level of education to kindergarten to these big commercial buildings and stuff like that. It's just bound to happen again. But by having these skill sets, we can't we can't mitigate the inherent risks that are just in the nature of our industry and our profession, but that'll just that'll safe. What that'll allow us is to be unequivocally more successful during one of these incidences and makes the public more safe. Is if by having Spencer teach us, is you can compound that knowledge to his level, and it's never going to be his level, but just to compound the knowledge that he has, we can transfer that. So it's like you have another big incidence that occurs. Is if I can start rendering aid 
faster. I could recognize this stuff faster and I could save more lives faster. I can delay that onset enough just so that he can get there. People in his profession can get there. How many more lives can be saved? I, I think it's easy though. You know, complacency is, is a threat, right? Complacency for many police departments is the threat because these things don't happen very often, right? You know, you've executed hundreds or even thousands of warrants and none of them gone this way. So you start to confuse good luck with good tactics. Um, Jordan, from your perspective, like, I know we've talked about the complacency played a role here. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I think before this incident, we had seen this trend where admin was trying to get us to do more with less. Um, you know, understaffed, overworked is is kind of how I describe our agency and what we had to deal with. And there's some advantages to that where you get creative. You learn a lot of solutions that a lot of other agencies and cops don't have to think about. The problem and the downfall with that is it kind of puts you in this mindset to where because you get away with it a few times, then you get away with it a lot. And then you get away with that for a few years that when you come across something like this, and we've all talked about it, we knew in the pit of our stomach that this guy wasn't like other crooks that we're dealing with. This guy's different. However, we still had that, oh, well, I don't want to activate the whole team yet. You know, mm, that's a lot of overtime. Maybe we should do, let's let's do the same thing we've been doing. We're going to do a little more with a little less, even though we know that this guy is different. We've all said it. We talked about it with each other. Um, I think that mindset kind of bled into this incident as well. And um, I think you have to look at things from an individual, like you have to take each incident on its individual merits. And individually, I know Chris talked about it a lot, this incident threw up red flag after red flag after red flag to the point where the whole team, looking back, and hindsight's easy to judge. It's easy to judge things on hindsight. But looking back with all these red flags, the whole team should have been activated and said, hey, you're going to sit around the station for 24 hours. Just just to have you on standby. Um, I think, I know personally, my mindset was, hey, I don't care how fast he is. I don't care what he's done. I'm I'm faster. I've trained more. I'm better. And you should have that mindset when you go into it. But you can't neglect the reality of the tactics that you have on the ground. Because as we just saw, it doesn't matter how fast or big or strong you are, a bullet's faster and a bullet's stronger. So I think that really bled into some of the tactical decisions that were made that day do more with less. And um, that that was one of the days we were, we were caught and we were punished for it. So do you think that like the, the fact that you had been successful with small team tactics with, you know, a ticket of van versus sure. taking a Bearcat or something else, that those things had created almost like a danger inoculation for you guys? Like it just, even though it seemed dangerous, like we've always done it this way, it's it's worked. Yeah, and I think that's also part and parcel with the city that we work in. We deal with high-level criminals on such a regular basis that, you know, you kind of become numb to it. We see just horrific shootings and horrific incidents of violence on a regular basis that you do become desensitized to it, desensitized to it. And um, it's very easy to just say, yeah, no, this guy was pretty violent yesterday with the deputy. We know what's going to happen, but, you know, we've always done this. It's going to work. Instead of taking a second saying, hey, this guy has thrown up more red flags than I've seen our other crooks regularly do and take that on its individual merits, it's very easy to just fall into, well, this is this is what we're going to do because this is how we always do it. Instead of taking a moment to critically think, is this the best tactic for this guy on this day? 
And I definitely think looking back, that's where I fell short. And I know I've talked to I've talked to a lot of guys, and they felt felt like that's where they fell short that day too. So Jordan, I think you know you guys made a lot of good decisions sure. prior to this, right? Like in in training, we've we've talked already about you know attention to detail, attention to things. Uh, talk about personal preparation for me a little bit, because you know ultimately I think your fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously the team's skills play into this, but, you know, we've, we've talked offline about the need to be attentive to the details of your personal job. Give me kind of your thoughts on that. Sure. I I know Chris touched on, touched on it earlier too. We have a duty to the public. We have a duty to each other. Like I have a duty to Chris when I'm on the team, I have a duty to Spence when we're on the team to be the very best we can be out there. I know that sounds cheesy, but it's true. You have a responsibility to be the best version of yourself. And especially when you're on a tight-knit team doing high-risk operations like a SWAT team, you have to be in the best physical shape possible. If Spence goes down and I have to get him over a fence, if I'm too weak to get a limp body over a fence, I'm no good. And I shouldn't be on that team. So that was something I took really, really serious. Um, Physical... Physical fitness was huge for me, uh, especially for the recovery, which we we talked about later. But um, for the day-in-day aspects of the team, physical fitness is everything. So I ran multiple miles every day. I lifted six times a week. I was in probably the best shape I had ever been in in my life at that point. But I feel like that's how you have to be on a SWAT team. That's part of your preparation. That's, that's work you do before you get to – the station that's that's work you put in every day just to be a part of that team um things that you need to take care of when you get there especially for newer guys listening and i wish i would have learned this earlier is get your gear scored away you should know everything that's on your on your gear you should know how your vest is set up you should know the specs on every single thing on on your vest to your gun to how you load your mags every single detail of every single thing that you set up will make a difference. Um, I know Spence preached it early on and he was really heavy on having a tourniquet that's located in the triangle. So for example, let's say your right arm gets hit, you need to be able to access your tourniquet with your left arm. Your left arm gets hit, same thing with your right arm. If your leg gets hit, you need to have a tourniquet for your leg. Multiple limbs get hit, get hit like it did with me, you need to have multiple tourniquets. I carried a tourniquet high, a tourniquet low, and I think I had a tourniquet in my med, med bag and I think I carried one more. I carried one more tourniquet on my belt. Um, and it came into play that day. I had three tourniquets applied on me, and then we needed a fourth for Officer Shipley. So if there's any patrol patrol um, guys or girls listening and you're not carrying a tourniquet out on patrol, you're you're insane. Like, And you should be carrying multiple. I, and I know there's realities of your patrol belt and what you can fit, but you, you need to have your gear prepped for this scenario. Not for, hey, if things go right, you need to have a your gear prepped for when things go wrong. Yeah. One of the things that we see in a lot of the teams that I've dealt with over the years is they strip gear off because it's heavy and it's inconvenient and it gets in the way. And, you know, you, you kind of watch them go through gear phases where they are totally prepared. And then they're like, oh, I'm not going to carry my tourniquet this time. And you see guys starting to strip more and more gear off to get back down to the lightest thing they can. And, and again, I think it goes back to that training for the worst case scenario, not for the best case. Yeah, and uh, I think too. I've I'm not going to name names, but I, I've been at trainings where I pick up somebody's vest and it like <laughs> flies off the ground, and I'm like, 
where the hell are your plates? And they're like, oh, no, they're in a different vest or, you know, my back hurt today. I don't want to train with my plates in. That's insane. That's absolutely mind-blowingly insane. Train how you're going to be out there in the field. Because if you can't stand on a 10-hour 10 hour training with your with your plates in because it's too heavy, then you're not going to be able to stand out there on a 15-hour call-out with your plates in. You're, you're going to be fatigued. And um, you could forget to put them back in. And as we saw from this incident, my, my plate and my vest directly is the reason I'm here. You know, all tactics and everything aside, plate stopped around direct center to probably my aorta. And then the cummerbund stopped an, an additional round going into my thoracic cavity. So yeah. I, I think your gear is just everything. But <laughs> the piggyback off that too is I don't think people really dwell into the question like the why, like he discussed about picking people up being the physical capability of like you'll have people say like, oh yeah, I'll just pick up and I'll, I'll just dummy drag carry on. Well, how's that truly going to look when you have a, a, a completely incapacitated person where you have, it's completely immobile. He's now you do some sort of sweat, blood, all these different types of factors too. Like, how's that truly going to look? And they don't think about stuff like that. They're like, oh, I was, I'm tough. I'm a big guy. I'll just pick him up and carry him. Something a little different about the team and kind of the culture we had was everyone was always competing. Like we were going to SWAT competitions, to shooting competitions. Like if Chris drew and it was 1.1, someone was trying to beat him. Like the whole team was out there trying to beat his draw time. Like we would have duels with Sims on our lunch breaks. Like it was that kind of competition that I think just forced everyone to get better across the team. And that was a, a great like culture for us to have. Well, I mean, you raise a point, which is just culture, right? Like culture is is what underlies the behavior of an organization. And, you know, having the right culture is where excellence comes from. It's not an individual act. It, it's a cultural act. It's it's not acceptable to fall below the line. Yeah. And and so as a result, everybody's striving. And like you said, everybody's trying to get better, trying to get faster. And I think in the end, with this incident, you know, Jordan's alive because of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. It's it's that um, it's that same culture. I remember we did an Arvark competition. Uh, a while ago. And Sorry, I what think, kind of competition? Uh, it was uh, Aardvark sponsored Artac. Okay. And I was <laughs> I was new on the team. And uh, at this time, I hadn't been shooting as much as I could. I've been working a ton of overtime on patrol, doing FTO stuff. Kind of not focusing on the team. I'm, I'm brand new. And this is, and I'll just kind of throw myself under the bus here. And I went to this team and uh, Spencer was on a team with a couple people. And I was on a different team with a couple people. And Spencer's team finished first. And our team, we finished like 10th or 11th or something like that. And I performed to everybody else's standards in the competition mid-table, you know, average. But to our team, I was by far the slowest and the worst when it came to shooting on our team. And that feeling of just shame, and that's when it first kind of hit me of, hey, this isn't acceptable. Like, hey, you need to go to the range. You need to step your game up, and you need you need to you need to step up because you've just embarrassed yourself in front of your entire team. Um, and that was kind of that first. And I was brand new on the team. I think a few months, but that was that first intro, that first taste of, hey, this is this is a different culture now. Like you're going from patrol to a close knit team who competes with each other to be the best. And that's when that mindset started to take over. So Jordan. Last topic, 
you said earlier that you know there are things that that you would have changed obviously retrospectively like anything else right it's it's easy monday morning to look back at an event and go oh well that didn't go well and and i think that a big point of the debrief is to talk about those things where do you think this went wrong like what what do you pin down as as your primary if i had to do it again i would do it differently well it's so with this and i'm sure I've, people on the outside looking in can identify like a hundred things that probably went wrong. I think one of the big ones, when I look back, one of the big flaws in the plan, because I think that plan could have worked, but I think the problem, one of the main problems was we gave him too easy of a, of a equation to solve. We gave him one van, four guys versus you. That was too easy of a problem for him. And he, he solved it pretty well. He hit two out of four. Um, when you look back, there was genuine confusion when it came to turn on the street because the marked units weren't sure if they should turn on because we knew if this guy saw, saw a marked unit, it was game on. We knew if he saw a marked unit, he was going to get out of his car, and shoot or run. So marked was off the table. So they weren't sure if they should turn in with us. UC units also weren't sure if they were turning in with us. There was genuine confusion. So when we went to turn onto the street, we went in with one van, versus him and ultimately i think that just gave him like i said too easy of an equation and uh yes we won because of everything else we've talked about but one we got lucky and uh two he he was able to solve it so so to do over again multiple vehicles probably yeah yeah give him that i think spence talked about it too make him make a choice you know by the time he sees one two three four cars popping up officers popping out he has to make that uh, decision, and that decision takes time. And by that point, one of us will have a gun. One of, and it's all, it's all looking back. It's all hindsight. Anything could have happened had we done that too. Somebody could have been shot in the face, and we could have been going to a funeral instead. But I think looking back, we should have given him a more difficult um, problem that he had, they, that he had to confront. That makes sense. Would you? I mean, obviously, hindsight being twenty twenty. Should you have taken armor? Yes. It's it's hard, too, because one of the considerations, and it's not an easy choice. It, it's not, because he sees armor. That car has not been rendered immobile. We don't know who the driver is. We haven't identified him. We don't know his criminal history. We don't know if he's armed. We don't know if he's going to run. So one of the main concerns, if we pulled onto that street with a piece of armor, is he recognizes that, and now we're involved in a vehicle pursuit yeah. with a guy we know is going to engage officers um and that was one of the things we wanted to avoid so there's a million different ways you could do it um just ultimately i think we should have done a little more but uh, armors is a good option i just don't know if it's the right one ultimately i don't know yeah i think it's it's obviously it's challenging right yeah. because it's you know you can do 100 vehicle takedowns and 99 of them go fine and, and this happens and if if this never happens then you don't know whether it was good luck or good tactics. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, when when you've had a, a bad event, you can look back and go, well, you know, that didn't work. What else could we do? Is there anything else that you you think that a team that's listening, an individual operator that's listening, you would want them to know or want them to at least think about? 
There, there's so many lessons. One of the main ones I would say is that um, separate your leadership in terms of roles and responsibilities. I think we had too many people trying to do too many things. And I think some of that was lost in the tactics, tactical decisions that were made that day. I think that if you have one leader who's dedicated to you are the takedown, you are the takedown team leader, this is your element, that's all I want you to focus on. This is you. I think it kind of simplifies things instead of one guy trying to make too many decisions. I think this, that is one of the areas where we ran into problems. So I would say for any, especially team leaders listening, try and simplify your problems, put guys um, in charge of their individual elements, and then kind of trust them to do that. Because I think uh, we had just had too few people trying to make too many decisions, and I don't think it worked. I recently interviewed Kevin Sear, who's the team leader for the RCMP ERT in British Columbia. And one of the things that Kevin said is, um, and it's kind of a controversial statement for some people, is the chief shouldn't be the one making the decisions. The person making the decision should be the person that has the best situational awareness and knows the most about the situation. Yeah. And and it stuck with me because it, it is it is easy to push responsibility up too far in an organization. And as a result, kind of cripple the tactical decision making. Yeah. And it sounds like that's kind of one of your concerns here is it, it, it got, there were too many chiefs and not enough Indians or, you know, too many chefs and not enough cooks or whatever. Yeah. I think it's also easy to conflate, um, time on with the experience. So there's a lot of people who had a lot of time on who are making decisions versus a lot of people who had a lot of experience in this. And there were a lot of people who you know, offered alternate points of view. Um, and and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. Genuinely, I'm no. not. It's just, I think when you're a team leader making decisions, it's up to you to put the best person in the role, not because of, not because of the rank or because of any other factors. It should be the best person who has the most experience with that specific job that you're asking him to do. I feel like that is something we could have improved on. I think, yeah, just again, going back to just questioning question the why and then question what a real life, what a real life situation is truly going to look like, what that to its underlying core, what that is really in a real world situation, what that's going to look like. And we got to live it, but we, this is this type of scenario that we always, we replay and we reiterate over and over again. Like you say, you do this stuff, but to experience it, it's completely different. And once you add all those different external factors and everything else that's going on, I mean, it's just it muddies the water extremely fast. And that's what I just hope people get is like to really, really question the why. Everything that someone tells you is you question, you try to find a reason to disprove or discredit what they're saying. And that just allows you to understand it more thoroughly so that you can apply it in every single type of situation. Because if you can understand how it works and you can apply it. And I think that's just the one thing, that one message that I hope that I would like other people to get to hopefully take from this. I think for me... Um going to a new team now it, it's changed how i look at things like how i look at these problems like my uh my slideshow is a little bit different you know when we're doing this and making sure that on my end we're doing a good job of getting our guys covered medically and, and being prepared and we have more medics and physicians on this team and it's uh you first get on the team and you're just happy to be there, right? Especially as a fireman, you're just thrilled. Like, this is so <laughs> cool. But um, it 
it takes an incident like this to realize, yeah, it's for keeps. Like we're playing this for real. And uh, sims are great and training's great and everyone goes home. But if guys aren't asking that question of, hey, why are we doing this? Why is it this tactic? And if those leaders are given the answer of because we've always done it, we've always been successful, like that should be a red flag. Like, have you always been successful because you're really good or because yeah, it just happened that one time we did it, it worked out. So I don't know. It has definitely changed my outlook on on the team and, and how I view some of these incidents that we're showing up to. Uh, you just, I'm a little more vigilant when I'm looking at them. Um, another thing for us, something I think we did while Jordan was in the hospital that was really beneficial to our, the group of guys that were there was for the next three or four days, we just all got together and we just hung out and it was always at someone's house and someone else's house and all the wives got together. Like they were devastated as well. You know, and we must have talked through it, what, a hundred different times. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was rough. There were some days where it was just like, you had the ugliness of it, the anger, every, every emotion you could think of, everyone went through. And I think those four or five days that we did that, like really helped most of the, most everyone that was involved in this kind of move forward and then start focusing focusing on getting Jordan home and making sure that he's going to be good after that. So, but it took a toll, like, you know, Chris and Jordan, we, our families all vacation together, hung out together. They were there at my house, seeing my oldest off to the Navy and, uh, yeah, this was definitely something different that no one in my family, you know, my kid was in boot camp and called home and he's like, Hey, someone said this happened. Like, is everyone okay? Or he was just out of boot camp. And uh like it was a big deal. It kinda affected everyone we know. And so just being together and working it out after the fact helped. So yeah, make sure if this happens to your guys and your organization that you really do your best as an administrator or as a supervisor to look after everyone. Because one of the guys um, who was driving my car was devastated. Like he was absolutely a, a wreck after this because he had to listen to everything I wasn't paying attention to in the back. Sorry. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. but realistically, I've had, yeah. had 16 years of kind of ignoring this stuff. Yeah. Not. Not to be rude, but there's just other stuff going on. Yep. That was his first time, and it was his buddy. So like, we need to take that into account, make sure our guys are, you know, everyone on that team, even guys that were off, were mentally okay after the fact. I think that's a fantastic place for us to stop. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you for having us.